chapter 15, I, I want to go back to just a couple of quick thoughts to uh, recapture chapter 15. And um, remember that we're, when you're in chapter 15, you're, you're entering into that time period on God's watch that we call the half a time, right? So when you look at all of history, you can divide it up into these compartments. There's a time, which is, which is Old Testament history. There's a time, which I believe that we're in today, that, that began with the advent of Jesus Christ and uh, will end with what the Bible calls that half a time, which is that last measure of time prior to the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, so what chapter 15 is taking us into is that half a time period, that last effort that God is making to bring people to himself. <clears throat> and the thing that always strikes me about this is, um, you know, if you, if you look at Revelation from a 30,000 foot level, remember when we began the book, it's written to churches. And the, the purpose of the book is to, to strengthen the body for the effort that God is, is making to, to bring people to himself during these, these last days. And the, the irony to me is, when I look at the, the, the church in Western America today, um, I think to myself, well, we, we probably are not in that half a time period yet. The indications would be no. But we're probably closing in on it. And rather than a church becoming stronger and more intentional and having a sense of urgency about reaching people that are lost, well, I kind of look at the church today and I think, no, it's kind of settled into kind of a, a rut where when I look at the body, um, we're, we are, we're living in a time where the fastest growing uh, group of people in, in America, in our own country, are, are the nuns, those who do not uh, have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and that's true even here in Grand Island. So I look at Revelation, I think, boy, here's this call on the church to, to look at this mission that God has given us and to, to, to recognize I can't go make people in Grand Island believe in Jesus Christ. I can't do that. It's not, not, I'm not able to do that. What I am able to do is to have that sense of urgency that calls me to join God in, in the effort that he's making, right, to bring people to himself. And, um, and so as we go into 2016, I ask you guys, what is your resolution? I really just have this, this sense that uh, what would it mean for uh, a body, a Peace Lutheran Church, to really just crank it up a, a notch in terms of saying, um, we, listen, what's, it, what's at stake when we look at this, this new year? Our souls, souls of people. And we really believe there is a hell. A lot of churches don't. I, I do. And if I believe that and I see what God is trying to do, what does it mean to crank it up a notch and to say, what, what would it take for us to, to bring people in this city to, to know him? And I, I mean, I, just coming off of this, this Christmas season, I don't know about you, but I just had that sense. There's a lot of people in this city who don't, they do not have a relationship with our Lord at all. So that's that 30,000 foot view of it. You pick that up, and this is just by way of review in this song that's being sung. 
And chapter 15 starts off that way. We're, we're kind of taken up again into heaven. And we've got this glassy sea mixed with fire. We've talked about that, that, you know, the fire, um, if we go back in, in Revelation, uh, it indicates is, is, is really the product of these, these torches, flames, that represent uh, the, the people who are in heaven today um, awaiting Jesus' return. The glass sea represents God who's watching now his creation. And what is his heart about? What is his heart about? Well, you pick it up in the song that's being sung. And it's described, uh, if you look at verse 3, as the song of Moses, the servant of God. The, the literal translation is Moses, the slave of God. Um, I like that language. And the song of the Lamb. Put those two things together. Here's this song that's being sung. It's a song of Moses. Well, remember, Moses sings his song after what? The enemy is defeated. So chapter 15 is saying, I'm going to take you in this last time to that moment in human history where the evil one is put to rest for all times. Okay? So we're living today, if I asked you, is the enemy defeated today? We would say yes, he's defeated on the cross. Okay. Is he defeated in your life? Well, that depends, right? Do I have faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Yes, then I can say with confidence, absolutely. The enemy is defeated in, in my life, right? Is he defeated in the world, the cosmos? Well, in one respect, yes, he is. He's under the authority of God. He cannot do anything outside of, of that authorization of Jesus Christ. The enemy cannot. No demon, Satan himself, restrained by God, right? Now, that half a time, released, right? But for only a short period of time, still under the authority of God. So during this period of time, what, what's happening is, is we're going to go to that time where we can sing the song of Moses. I'm going to, for once and for all, take this defeated enemy, and I'm done with you. I'm going to extinguish death, I'm going to extinguish Satan's ability to tempt human beings, and he is going to be now uh, re, re, uh, retained in, in hell exclusively. Okay, so on one hand, the Song of Moses is meant to talk about not the defeat of Satan, but the, the final blow to him and his kingdom. That's the Song of Moses. What about the Song of the Lamb? It's called both, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Well, the Song of the Lamb is, is a victory song. Defeat, victory. Victory over sin, death, and the devil, right? What, what's significant is when you look at the words of the song, they're pointing us to the heart of God during this last, during this last effort. What is the heart of God? That song, the words of it, point you to the heart of God. Just, just look at the words of the song again, Okay. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God, the Almighty. Okay? When you look at, at God, the first thing you would say about him is, you're, you're the works, your works are beyond our comprehension. How can you speak a word and a son appears? Great and amazing are your deeds. How can you speak a word and oceans appear? 
great and amazing your deeds. How can I look at human history and all of the battles that you've won and not say great and amazing your deeds? But none of those are as amazing as one single deed, the cross. Great and amazing are your works. His greatest work is the work of the cross and the resurrection. How do we know that? Well, just look at the next words. Just and true are your ways. Just and true. The works of God are about justice. Adam and Eve, you sinned against me. Now there must be justice, punishment for that. When will justice take place? Through Jesus on a cross. How do we know? Because you can hear Jesus write in those words. Just and true are your ha-doy. Just and true are your ha-doy. That's the plural of the word ha-das. Way is what we use in English. This is how you hear it. Jesus says, John chapter 14, to his disciples when they ask him the question, where are you going? We don't know the ha-das. We don't know the way. Jesus says, I am. Stop there. What does God say? Who are you, God, Moses says. I am. What does Jesus say? I am hadas, the way. It's a crossword. And so you, you don't necessarily see it when you just look at the words immediately, but this is a song about the justice of God, which is about the cross and about Jesus and what we deserved, punishment, placed upon him. Just, just and righteous are your ways king of all the nations. So I come back to this. I'm like, what is God's heart in this last effort? It's not just to crush people. It's not to just say, okay, I'm, we're going to, in this last time, we're going to give Satan and his followers what they deserve. You're going to hear some of that language. But the heart of God is what? I don't, I don't want any of them to, to be apart from me. Uh, so his efforts in this last period of time, are to bring people uh, to himself. Um, I like verse 4 in this song. Uh, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? This isn't, this isn't who will not fear, like, oh my gosh. But it's, it's the fear that comes from recognizing who I am. When I recognize that, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. I have no recourse other than that cross. Now I recognize his holy name. Right, and now I cry out his name. Help me, Lord Jesus. And that's God's heart. Uh, and then he concludes this song, uh, for all nations will, and this takes us to the end, they will come and they will worship you for your righteous acts will be revealed. When Jesus returns, right, all of his righteousness, you are the righteous one revealed and all now must Worship, not necessarily, oh, Lord, we're here to have a worship service, but the term here is proskuneo. They will bow down before you. In other words, all nations recognize you as God. You are the true God. You have authority over our lives. Okay, so after you hear this song being sung, um, and I believe the song is meant to say to, to John, John, we're going to take you to the very end when... The righteousness of Jesus Christ will be revealed. Now you have these bowls of wrath that are going to get poured out upon the earth. These are the seven last plagues. Okay, So in verse 5, it says, I looked and out of the sanctuary 
of the tent of witness uh, came seven angels with seven plagues. Clothed in pure bright linen, the golden sashes around their chests, right? So um, these plagues are going to, in a sense, be reminiscent of that time in, in Moses' life when how many plagues came against Egypt? Ten. Now we have seven. Think about those two numbers. Ten in the time of Moses because God is called Yahweh. Ten is God's perfect number. I am going to release you from Egypt and you will see my perfect hand at work. The last times, who, who is the one who releases us from spiritual Egypt? Jesus. And so what is his number? Seven. And so now through Jesus Christ, you're set free and you're going to enter into the promised land. These last seven plagues come in the name of Jesus Christ upon the earth, and the angels are wearing these sashes of, of gold and crowns because they have the authorization to pour out these bowls of wrath upon the earth. Last week we made this note. I think it's important. When you see this word wrath, thumu, in Greek, think of it, think of it thermostatically. Okay? So as God's pouring out his wrath upon the earth, he could do what? He could just wipe out the whole thing like that, doesn't. He thermostats it, okay? So he, he's not a God that just gets angry and has a fit. He's a God who's very intentional about the work of his wrath. The wrath of God has one intention, one goal. It's to do what? Bring me back to him, okay? It's not just punishment. It's intended to do what? Bring me back to him. And so he's thermostatically releasing his wrath upon the earth in this last period of time. Go to chapter 16. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go. Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath. Okay. Um, I think of that first word in the command. Uh, go. And uh, it's, it's the first word that Jesus gives to the disciples when he gathers to, them together prior to his ascension and says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always until the end of the Ionios, ages, last time. I'll be with you always till the end of that last period of time. So now we're getting to that last period of time and the go changes. We still are called to what? Go, make disciples. To the angels, go. Here's how you're going to make disciples. Wrath. Pour it out upon the earth. The intention of the wrath is to bring people back to myself. So the first angel went out and um, poured out his bowl on the earth and this is kind of an inter interesting language. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. Okay. So the very first, thank you, the very first um, plague, if you will, that gets poured out on the earth, it, it strikes first and foremost those people that are servants to, slaves to, belong to Satan and his kingdom. Uh, they receive sores. There's a, a counter 
part to that. In Egypt, remember the, the plague of the boils was poured out and people had these harmful boils. When I read this, there's a lot of different you know, thoughts that are thrown out by commentators and historians when they look at this, you know, at this language of these sores that come upon people. And, um, you know, some of them will say, well, notice that this is really aimed at just those that are apart from God, that these sores don't necessarily attack or affect believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, some people have said that as a part of that, um, Perhaps we're seeing even today uh, some of the effects of sexual promiscuity being borne out in people's bodies uh, with painful, right, sores and sometimes horrible consequences. And I know that that's not a very popular thing to say, but I think there's some truth to that, that part of this wrath of God calling people back to himself is, if you live this way, apart from my calling, guess what? There will be consequences to that. And part of those consequences are going to be in your body. And there will be pain in there, and I'm calling you back through that pain. So I made a couple of notes to myself. Um, you know, Frank, Franklin Graham, you know, got in big trouble back in the day when, you know, he said about AIDS, Look, this is, this is a product of part of the wrath of God, that we've got people living outside of the will of God, and God said, I'm pouring my wrath out, and it's affecting people's bodies. And is it painful? Absolutely, it's painful. And people said, how dare you say that about God? You can't say that. You know, God's a loving God. He would never do that. Besides that, um, you know, there's, there's people that did nothing. I mean, like little children who receive blood transfusions and they get AIDS. So you, you can't say that God is doing that. Well, I read this and I think, yeah, there's folks that go, well, look, the, this, these painful sores are only coming upon those with the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. So that it can't affect people who are believers. Does it actually say that? No? It says it's going to be poured out upon those who are what? Living outside of God's will and way and relationship with him. Does it say it will never affect anyone else? No, it does not say that. And so um, Franklin Graham, for him to stand where he stood, and he never did back down, I'm, I'm glad, stood in the right place to be able to say, no, God's wrath is not meant to just be, I'm I'm killing babies or I'm killing people. It's meant to do what? To turn people's hearts back to himself. Probably one of the most memorable moments in my early ministry life was a visit to a hospital. And uh, how many of you ever heard of, of herpes simplex 2? Okay. So if you're in the medical profession, you just, you just raise your hand, right? So um, herpes is, is um, uh, a sexually transmitted disease right, that shows up at times, it's, it's periodic, as sores uh, on parts of your body that you shouldn't um, take pictures of and send out on the internet, right? Um, so it comes and it goes, comes and goes. Uh, a lot of people think, well, it's not that big a deal. And that was this particular gal. She, 
she thought not that big a deal until her baby was born. And I'll never forget walking into the hospital room and looking down into a bassinet, and there's her little baby. And the baby was blind. And what caused the blindness was herpes. And sitting down beside this young mom, it's her first child, and having her just break down into a puddle of utter brokenness. Pastor Luke, I did this to my child. My child will never see light. They'll never no color. They'll go through life blind because of me. And um, you talk about a person just stuck in absolute horrible guilt. And as a pastor, what I wanted to say to her was, needed to say to her was, first of all, yeah, herpes did this. I mean, there's no question about that. She, she wants to know, why would God do this? I, if I did wrong, God can punish me, not my child. Like, no, this is not about punishment. This is not about a God who goes, I'm going to punish your child. This is about a God who will, does and will love your little one their whole life. And their whole life will be like this in eternity. And he'll bring your little one to himself through faith. Right? In the process... You're, what, what God is doing to you is he's loving you. And, and the real message is this is not about a God who's just trying to punish you. It's about a God who's calling you to know that he does love you. The consequences of our sin are not a demonstration of God's hatred towards us. They're what? A demonstration of God's love towards us to turn us, to bring us back to himself. So this very first plague that I look at, these, this pouring out of, of the wrath of God upon human beings, part of which I do believe is going to be lived out painfully inside of, of bodies, is not again about God just saying, hey, I'm going to punish the earth. It's about a God who says, my wrath is meant to bring people back to myself. The consequences of, of sin show themselves in our lives. Those are not removed. The sin is removed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Better that I, that I live my life in pain, but in the grace of God, than that I live my life without pain, right? But I never come to know, know God at all. So that first plague is meant to say to, to mankind, I am trying to do what? To tap you in a hard way. We're entering into that half a time trying to tap you in a hard way to say to you, come back to me. Go to verse 3. Second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like, like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Okay? So um, I want you to notice one thing here that may or may not just catch your, your eye. Uh, I want you to notice the progression here. So let's kind of do it this way. I've got, I've got these, these three references here that kind of show the progression of what God is doing. Remember, Revelation is cyclical, so it goes like this. 
we're now getting down to, these lat, to this last circle of time. Okay? So we've been looking at what? That period of history that begins with the advent of Jesus Christ concludes with his return. Look at it once, now look at it twice, now look at it three times, now look at it four times, now look at it five times, taking us all the way to the, the very end. Notice how over the course of history, what God is doing is progressive. In other words, it's kind of like a mama who says, don't touch that cookie jar. And then the second time, don't touch that cookie jar. And then the third time, sit down right there and don't move. I told you not to cook that, touch that cookie jar, right? So God is progressively at work through his wrath, attempting to bring people back to himself. So when you go back to, to chapter 6, remember this with me, you have the very first, right, the very first act of God's wrath upon earth. And remember what happens is a fourth of the earth is affected. Remember that? Fourth of all the things in the sea died. Okay? When we get to chapter 8, we're now getting progressively what? More intense. Now a third of everything in the sea dies. When you get to chapter 16, what do we just read? All, everything in the sea dies. That's how you know what period of time that we're in. During that half a time period, what will happen on planet Earth, both in terms of humans and their relationships, as well as what's happening supernaturally within nature, is cataclysmic. It's meant to bring everything to an end. Okay? So when people read the Revelation, they say, well, are you telling me that the sea will actually turn into blood? My first answer is, well, let me ask you this question. In Egypt, when the plague of blood was enacted upon the waters, did they really turn into blood? A lot of, a lot of theologians today in our, our pretty liberal America, say, oh, no, no, this was just, this is red algae, and the algae grew up, and the algae got into the water, and it turned red, and you couldn't drink the water, and it was really bad. No, actually, the word used here, as well as in Egypt, is blood. In fact, here, it's even stronger. The blood of a corpse, okay? So I don't have to do this, and I really don't want to do this, but um, people who have to work with corpses, when blood hasn't been like pumping for a while, what they'll tell me is it stinks really bad. It's yucky. It's quite bad, right? So the picture that's being painted here is a picture of death and, yes, blood. C, turning to blood. So what's happening is there is, you're, you're entering into a period of time where human beings cannot, think about this with me, human beings cannot explain away what's happening in the natural world. They can't say, oh, well, there's some bad algae growth. Uh, no, there's death. I mean, like, we go fishing, it, no, you don't fish in blood, and there's no fish to catch, right? Crab legs for, for Christmas, it ain't happening, right? Crabs aren't living, it's all dead, okay? So, um, again, that period of time is a, is cut short by God. We don't know in human years how, how long a period of time it is. We just know it's a cut short period of time. But there is no escaping the fact that God is acting upon nature in a supernatural way, cataclysmically, to bring all things to an end. 
Verse 4, now the fresh waters are affected. Okay? So if, if I think of it this way, like, well, I could live, I could live without seafood. Yeah? I mean, there's certain seafood I like, but shrimp cocktail are pretty good. But I mean, um, how about living water? How about water? Can I live without that? No. And so here you have, again, this, this third plague. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Once again, can't explain it away. I've got no water. If you've got both the sea, the rivers, the fresh streams being affected, you have what? You have the end. Because human beings cannot live long apart from water, like days. So that's what tells you, again, what time period we're in. We're now reaching that cataclysmic moment where God is in this last effort trying to bring people back to himself. Verse 5 is kind of interesting. It says, And I heard the angel of the waters. Now, ESV actually translates it, the angel in charge of the waters. The Greek actually simply just says the angel of the waters. Um, I heard the angel of the waters say, Notice Notice the similarity between what this angel says and what the song of Moses and the Lamb was. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought about these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what is, and the actual Greek here would simply read, is right. It's righteous. It's, 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 I mean, our ESV translates as what they deserve, just right. It's, it's within God's authority to do. I heard the altar saying, remember in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, who is underneath the altar in heaven? It's the martyrs, right? Those whose blood has been spilt for the name of Jesus Christ. So when I say I heard the altar saying, you're hearing the voices of those martyrs speaking, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So a couple of things that strike me, one is just interesting, is that the angel of the waters, how God uses today supernatural creation, angels, on earth right now, to what regulate life under the fall. Okay? When Adam and in and when Adam and Eve sinned, we kind of think, well, yeah, they sinned. They kind of blew it. Uh, all right. No. Everything about this entire earth changed in that moment, right? God put a curse upon the earth. And we're under that curse, right, until the very, till the very end, till he returns. So underneath that curse, um, it's, it's, you know, it's right to be able to say, what God is doing is he's, he's re actually just regulating his judgments upon the earth. His primary judgment is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one, and it's upon hearts, and it's about eternity. Um, verse number 8, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Okay? I don't know if any of you ever read the, um, the series Left Behind, but this was my favorite part of it. It was. It really was. Um, I laughed. I probably laughed for an entire week about this. 
I did. Because the, the way that a millennialist tries to interpret the revelation is they, they try to take things and, um, and, and draw them out linearly. Okay? So a millennialist would look at this as, as maybe an extended period of time uh, leading up to, to the judgment day. Okay? Whereas we're looking at it, it's very plain to you, it should be very plain to you, that these judgments are bringing about a cataclysmic end, a quick end. Not, it's not going to be protracted. Well, in, in the book, uh, Left Behind, they've got to make this thing work. So what they do is they have human beings living on earth, and the sun is, is sending out, you know, like these spikes of, of heat and, and burning people up. Um, and so what people do is they get into these buildings and they put these big blackout blinds up to block out the sun rays so they can, you know, exist during this period of time when God is shooting these sun rays at the earth. Well, the character that they have playing the role of Antichrist, um, Satan, they give him sunglasses, and he actually goes out and sunbathes during the time that this stuff is, is going on. And I'm reading this stuff, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And they're selling these books, like, by the millions. I'm like, I've got to write a book. <laughs> got to write a book. I mean, it's ridiculous. But um, here, remember, remember earlier in Revelation, we have the sun that becomes darkened. It dies. Okay. Well, here, this isn't different. This is just that the sun is dying, right? And so what is it doing? It's burning up. And yes, human beings are being burned up to it because this is that cataclysmic end that we're coming to. The most important thing to notice is the reaction of the people. Okay. So I'm going to read this word in Greek and I want you to tell me what English word you hear. Okay. Okay. So it says, They were scorched by the fierce heat and they a blast. Fimeson, God. So I'll say it one more time. They were scorched by fierce heat, and they blasphemeson, God. What's the word? Blasphemy. Okay. So there, the the response of people outside of God's grace to His wrath that intends to bring them back to Him. The response of many of them is to do what? To blaspheme him. God damn you for this. Okay? I've always thought blasphemy is one of the most interesting things that happens on earth because typically the blasphemer says, I don't believe there is a God. But in their blasphemy itself, they're cursing the very thing that they don't believe in. Right? And uh, blasphemy is when I am consciously rejecting God as God, standing against him, right? And so what we'll know is that in these last times, what's happening is God is seeking through his thermostatic wrath to bring people back to himself. There are, are going to be all kinds of things both in the natural world and supernatural world that he'll use to do that including the release of Satan and demons, to kill people. Okay. During this period of time, there will be many who will do what? Stand hardened against God. How can that be? Okay. So 
if you'll allow me to, I, I, this is really important to me, so I want to spend a little, little bit of time on it. What I want you to see is, I believe right now today, right now today, even inside of the church, a lot of what's happening is God is working thermostatically to try to bring people back to himself. What happens is the Spirit is trying to say to you, come back to God. Put that down. Walk away from that. Let God free you from that. Our human hearts have the capacity, ability to say what back to God? No. Now, if I say no to God, does that mean I'm outside of his grace? No, it does not. Okay. So when I, when I get a, a, uh, an, an email from someone who says, hey, thank God this Christmas time my lesbian daughter went to church. I do thank God for that. Because my child is a lesbian and living outside of God's will, are they automatically condemned? They're going to hell. No. No, no, not true. Their sin, is it different than your sin? From God's perspective, no. Here's what does happen, though. If I remain in that sin, if I say that's not a sin, what happens is just like just like I build a callus on my finger from playing a guitar string over and over and over, my heart builds a callus against God until I can reach that point in time where I may or may not even consciously be aware that I have now rejected God. And when I reject God, i.e., I commit what the Bible calls the unforgivable sin, I stand against the Spirit of God, then the object of wrath is destruction to hand me over to the very thing that I have embraced with my life. And this is what really scares me in the church today is that, um, you know, the, the white horse, uh, the church in America today has taken what the Bible clearly calls sin and has said, no, it's really not sin. It's okay. It's how God naturally made you. And because of that, we're putting people in that position where their hearts can just continue to say no, 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 no. Because the Spirit of God, unlike the church, is coming into that person saying, no, 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 no. Come back to me. I should be the object of your love. Um, and that's what scares me. So when I read this, I come, I come and look at it, and I think, okay, this is what's being described here, is at the very end you see it plainly, is that God, despite his supernatural efforts to bring people back to himself, faces people that say, no, I blaspheme you. I stand against you, God. They did not turn around, right, repent, and give him glory, recognize his presence in their life. And that's why Revelation is so critical to us today is it takes us to this 30,000-foot place that reminds us that our work in the world today is highly significant. There just are not a lot of churches left in America that are willing to say, no, 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 no. This is what God has called us to. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. He wants to be with you for eternity and, uh, and still continue to, to preach a message of, repentance coming back to him. Next week, Armageddon. Let's pray.